Welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that takes an honest look at the current administration and the news of the day. Byron York joins us today. He's written a few columns recently, diving into the Mueller investigation and some new findings regarding the FISA warrants to wiretap Carter Page. We'll also talk to him about the newly released tapes Michael Cohen made of his conversations with the president. What's going on there? Well, there's a lot going on, and Byron's going to break it down for us. We will also talk to our good friend, Dr. Curtis Adams. Different topic, different subject. He's going to share his thoughts on school shootings. What causes them? Why schools? What can we do to stop them? All right, Claude, let's go to some emails. Sure, we've got a few coming in. Uh, Let's go to Michael, I guess, Laporte or Laporte from Long Island, New York. There was a show, I'm just thinking, there's a show, an old show. This is only for people of my age in the audience. Okay. Letters, we get letters, we get stacks and stacks of letters. (laughs) Is it the Perry Como show? I don't know, but they'd read letters. Anyway. I says, uh, Bill, I am fuming. Fuming? Yes, fuming. I listened to you and Gordon Chang uh, on the podcast that was released July 20th, or at least he listened on July 20th, uh, when Chang said about the 2016 election and attacks on its legitimacy, telling Trump, just forget about it. I couldn't take it anymore. Uh, just forget about two and a half years of every stinking day being attacked, that his family, wife, and children are pilloried, that his son is threatened with arrest and prison, that his campaign workers are being investigated and arrested daily, uh, that they destroyed the lives of Michael Caputo, uh, General Flynn, and others, that Paul Manafort is sitting in prison right freaking now, that's a quote, uh, never being convicted of anything, that he is held in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day. Just forget about it, that every sexual uh, dalliance he has had in the last 30 years uh, is paraded before his wife and 12 year old boy just freaking forget about it sorry bill but i'm an old guy from the bronx i'm surprised at how composed trump is under the circumstances i sure as hell uh would not take the crap he is taking and that's from michael laporte yeah michael in the bronx hey this is bill from brooklyn uh you know well you kind of make the point you're surprised at how composed he is he is just kind of forgetting about it. I mean, this guy is tough skin. He's really resilient. And you talk about a job in which you have to be resilient. And I've never seen it piled on like it is piled on Trump. Now, he brings some of this on himself by some of the things he's done. But um, 80% of it he does not. And people are after him, and they don't forgive him for winning, and they think he's illegitimate, and they want him out there, and it's 24-7. But, um, you know, it, it may have seemed cavalier when our – Guess Gordon Chang said, just forget about it. I don't think he was being cavalier. I think he, what he was saying is just understand it's there. It's, you know, it's like the rain. Just put on a raincoat and go to work, you know, and the president is go, goes to work. Does not seem to immobilize him, does it? I, I don't think it does. Well, we're on the verge. By the time this people are listening to this, we may have had the announcement uh, of a uh, second quarter of 4% growth. <laughs> unheard of. Mm-hmm. Unheard of. Now, you know, the, the thing that's that's really kind of depressing is we think about if he didn't have all these troubles, if he didn't have all this attack, he'd be at 75% approval rating. And uh, if he didn't have, you know, tapes and all this stuff, which, which interferes, uh, he'd be higher than the mid-40s. But uh, he's doing a great job on a lot of fronts, and he does seem to be withstanding it. And he is kind of taking the advice Gordon Chang gave, which is just forget about it and move on. You know, what do you want him to do? Be immobilized? You don't want him to be immobilized. You want him to fight back? He does fight back. Mm-hmm. He, he, he strikes back with his tweets and uh, with his uh, with his comments on, on stage and in interviews. And, um, you know, this is a guy who, uh, you know, counterpunches. 
And I, I admire that. I don't always agree, but I admire it. Right. I think one of the things that Gordon, he was specifically mentioning uh, President Trump's response to the question about the elections with uh, with Putin. And uh, and I think Gordon's point was the fact that if he's not careful, he sees everything in light of someone attacking the legitimacy. Right. And the question wasn't necessarily attacking the legitimacy of the right. election. Right. And so in response, it's like, you know, try, right. to, try to separate the two. Failure to separate the right. collusion right. issue right. from the uh, legitimacy of the election. So I don't think he was saying just forget about it. It was just right. understand. You know, yeah, make that distinction. Keep making right. it. But the president doesn't make it. He hears anything about the election. He thinks it's personal attack on his right. legitimacy. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they mean it to be. They hope there's collusion, and they hope it delegitimizes him. Mm-hmm. You know, right. that's what his critics hope. Right. Who else? So hopefully Michael's not fuming anymore. All right. Well, to stop fuming, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> don't, and don't yell at your wife. <laughs> right. Or your grandchildren. Yeah, no, we don't want that. Here's Jane Swinson from Nashville, Tennessee. She says, Dear Mr. Bennett, our country's intelligent community is pursuing a witch hunt. I would respect the agencies if there was one shred of evidence that the FBI and the DOJ seriously investigated Hillary and all of her cohorts and zealously as they have Donald Trump and his cohorts. I guess you meant as zealously. Um, we do not uh, have to give the intelligence organizations the benefit of the doubt or any respect when all that has been discovered uh, has pointed to a fingering uh, and a setup for Donald Trump via the dossier. They certainly would have found a witch if they had looked into Hillary and her actions. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Uh, additionally, in the future, we don't uh, we do not have to respect the office of the president since none has been shown uh, any Democrats uh, since the night of Donald Trump's election. Since none has been shown by any Democrat. Uh, do you think that Paul Ryan is helping the GOP to retain the House in the upcoming election in the fall? He doesn't seem to care at all uh, and is always ready to criticize the president. Many thanks. Again, that's from Jane Swinson in Nashville, Tennessee. Hey Jane, um, yeah, I think a lot of this is trumped up, excuse the expression, and a witch hunt. Uh, legitimacy of the institutions, uh, I hope they're still legitimate. Uh, they are legitimate despite the errors and sins and uh, maybe crimes of some of the people at the top. I also understand why the president is uh, somewhat uh, wary and leery of praising uh, the FBI and the CIA. Look what Brennan did at CIA. Look what Comey did at FBI. They were dead set against him. But in terms of what's going to be uncovered, that's really what we're talking about with Byron today and, the, right. and that search, the FISA documents and all that. I think sooner or later we'll get to the bottom of all this. It is going to require, I think I've said this before, though, Jane, uh, the president to order the release of all those documents uh, completely, maybe just a few redactions for, for purposes of security. But uh, we have to see all this. Sunlight's the best disinfectant. And... Um, Hopefully, we'll, it'll 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 clear things up. It won't mean that people will stop attacking him, though. They will continue to attack him. Right, right. And this uh, final one from Sharon Gallagher, who yeah. uh, calls herself or refers to herself as a faithful listener. So faithful listener. We like faithful listeners. Thank you, Sharon. She says, I enjoy your weekly programs. I especially appreciate your choice of guests who teach me so much about the subject matter in which they have expertise. Through the years, you have introduced me to so many interesting and knowledgeable people of whom I would otherwise not be aware. Thank you for these many years of education. You know, last night I was with uh, Mick Mulvaney, the director of the OMB, Office of Management Budget, a bunch of people in town. And they turned to questions. I had a question. I started to talk. He said, ah, that radio voice. I remember that voice. I said, now it's now a podcast voice, Mickey. He said, ah, it's a good voice. Good to hear it. Thank you, Sharon. And we 
appreciate your support. We've tried to we've tried to do justice over here, try to have a good show, an interesting show, and, and stay on top of things. But you can get mad at us, and you can write, as our, our first uh, listener did. Mm-hmm. And um, what was his name? Uh, Bill. Oh, I'm sorry, Michael. As Michael, as Michael did from the Bronx. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, we love praise, too. To say, oh, no, please don't. Please just criticize. No, we love the praise. So we thank you, Sharon. And we thank you, Bill. And we thank you, Jane. Okay, thank you all. I just want to say a little bit about the stuff that's maybe a little past now, because every day is a new day with Donald Trump. But I was, I was really kind of appalled. Uh, I'm sure folks have seen this. Watching... Um, all the news shows, and there we are from Aspen, and there is Dan Coates, who's a friend of mine, former senator from Indiana, director of national intelligence, sitting there with Andrea Mitchell, and she says, oh, we have a bulletin, the president's invited Putin to visit, and and Coates leans in and goes, what, what, you know, incredulously, the audience laughs, and then a little later on, he says, oh, the meeting, well, boy, that'll be special. I mean, this is it, you know, this is the Washington I've seen, and Washington takes place in places like Aspen, too, and Harvard Law School. You get in there, and it's all these liberals, and there's Andrea Mitchell, and she's smiling at you, and you just slide over to the other side. And he was, you know, sympathetically, emotionally pleasing that audience, looking incredulous. How could the president do this? He later apologized. Dan's a very decent guy. But I just hate that. I just hate that stuff. I hate it when... uh I hate it when people do that, and it just uh, it just drives me nuts. Then uh, at the same Aspen conference, um, and boy, do I love Aspen. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world, and one understands why one wants to go out there, and the draw of being with the right people. Um, Christopher Ray, head of the FBI, was in the same situation. I think it was Andrea Mitchell or somebody. And they said, well, how are you? How's your life? How's your job? Gee, FBI, gosh, you guys are much put upon by the president. And he said, well, you know, when I see people, often the first thing they say to me is, oh, head of the FBI, we're praying for you. You know, as if he needs the prayers of people because of the wrath of Donald Trump. Donald Trump appointed him, you know. Mm-hmm. You kind of have a little loyalty there. Right. I just, I, again, you know, it's it's not threats that get people to slide over the other side. It's the charm and the... And the being being on the right side with the right people. When you're in Aspen, the Aspen Institute, you know you're with the right people. I know what I'm talking about. I was there for 10 years. I don't think I got sucked into it. But, boy, you can feel the pull. Well, surely you must admit that Reagan is a doofus, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, I don't admit that. But these guys, they just slide. And What is it that John Locke says? It's... Um, it's virtue we teach, hard virtue, and not the subtle arts of shifting. Hmm. These guys are shifting, you know, shifting their loyalty uh, and, and, and handing it over to the, to the Andrea Mitchells of the, of the world and the Aspens of the world. Or be on the Supreme Court and get invited to the Harvard Law School for the trial of Hamlet. And, you know, and be honored by Harvard Law School in there amidst all those liberals. They say, well, you really, you really don't like Trump, do you? You know, well, well. You know, wink, wink, nod, nod. Stop it. Stop it. Get men of character. The guy, I think, who is standing up so firmly, so strongly, I've seen him in every um, every time he, he's asked, is Mike Pompeo. Mm-hmm. This is a guy whom, uh, use a phrase of uh, learned justice of the, of the court, um, nothing can daunt and nothing can bribe. Uh, 
he's dauntless and admirable, and I, I think he's one of Trump's most loyal people. He's got other loyal people, too. But, man, that stuff bothers me. You know, another guy, Will Hurd, who is this congressman from Texas, uh, see, former CIA guy, and he, uh, you know, he, he just, he, he goes around talking about, you know, the president was, uh, you know, disloyal to the country and he, uh, you know, in, with Putin and um, Putin's manipulating Trump. He writes an editorial of Putin's manipulating Trump. He has no idea whether that's true or not. How about just holding off on writing that while you're still a Republican? Um, I would, I would appreciate that. Uh, anyway, um, you know, disagree, fine. I got I to tip my hat to Newt, who's been very much a Trump loyalist, but said after the Putin press conference, you know, this is one of the worst things that uh, the president's done. He's got to backtrack. The president did backtrack and did try to, you know, essentially apologize, take his words back, clarified his words. But um, be straightforward. Um, you know, agree with the man when you agree with him and disagree when you don't when you don't agree and, and, and do it in a in a direct way, but don't go too far. And, you know, loyalty does, I think, require you to hold your fire, at least for a while, to someone who's hired you. You know, if it gets to the point where you can't stand it, Christopher Ray or, or Dan Coates, leave. Just leave. Resign. Do the honorable thing. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. All right, joining us now, as promised, is columnist at the Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor, and a regular on this podcast, Byron York. All right, all things, not all things, but a lot of things, Donald Trump and what's going on, FBI, FISA, Congress, uh, and now this latest news, these tapes, Michael Cohen courting Donald Trump. Uh, could we start with that? Do you have any, have you written on this yet? I guess, I guess not. At the moment. I mean, why not? Why not? Gee, you're writing every six hours. Can't you write every four hours? You know, actually, I went out to dinner uh, with Mrs. York on Tuesday evening, and amazingly Unfor- enough, did not know till minutes after this had happened. Unforgivable. That, uh, you're not allowed to have private. I could go in and release these tapes. What? what <laughs> so are no, we, I haven't written anything on them yet. What do we make of this? Just uh, at thirty thousand feet. Well, you know, the, the my, my thirty thousand foot view is that I'm really interested in whatever Robert Mueller is doing now. Right. And the key thing to know about this Cohen case is that Robert Mueller handed it over to federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York. And a lot of people, including me, interpreted that to mean that Mueller looked at what was going on and decided it was not within his core area of uh, jurisdiction, which is uh, any um, conspiracy, coordination, collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign to influence the 2016 election. So anything that happens with Michael Cohen right now, I think, well, Mueller's not doing it. So maybe that tells me something about whether it plays into the Trump-Russia uh, investigation. Now, clearly, you know, there's other stuff going on. Michael Cohen has his own legal issues you know he's he got got all sorts of payments for doing all sorts of stuff that may or may not have been on the level i don't know and then there was this stuff with uh, he was doing with trump to pay off uh stormy daniels and karen mcdougall uh after their um brief and not so brief sexual liaisons with him i mean the bigger picture here for trump is i mean 
this is what happens when you hang around with people of low character. I mean, you know, with with strippers and porn stars and, and nude models and, and Michael Cohen. <laughs> so this, right. is, okay. you know, this is what can happen. Okay, that's 30,000 feet. And going to the ground quickly from thirty. Well, I thought I'd draw the big moral lesson. No, I, I listen. Hey, book of virtues, right here. You know, I'm with you. Uh, it's a problem. Let, let's just. I want to get into your pieces. You already did, actually. Uh, one of your great pieces. Why is Mueller handing off key cases? And you know, you just kind of opened with 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 that. This this Cohen taping of Trump. Um, I assume. Uh, will not be referred to Mueller, though watching TV this morning, several channels, CNN, Fox, uh, MSNBC, and certainly the last two, CNN, NBC, uh, MSNBC, are saying, well, you know, if there's evidence of uh, campaign finance violations, uh, yeah. bank fraud. Well, the idea. Bank fraud. The idea is, the, yeah. or perhaps the resistance fantasy is, and is that Michael Cohen knows all this stuff about Trump and will flip and then will tell Robert Mueller everything. Now, here again, he's not being investigated by Robert Mueller. Uh, but and is this stuff relevant that, to Robert Mueller? Is right, remember, campaign finance well, reform violations, bank fraud, is that relevant to Bob Mueller? Well, you'd have to think it's just as relevant as uh, Paul Manafort exactly. you know, using money from Ukraine to landscape his house in 2008 or something like that. Uh, you'd have to think it was at least as close to Mueller's bailiwick as the Manafort cases. That's right. Um, and when I finished reading your Why is Mueller handing off key cases, the one note I had was, well, why didn't he hand off Manafort? I mean, that's that's, that's kind of great. Yeah. Great question. Um, I mean, Manafort obviously was a, a key player in the Trump campaign. He was the campaign chairman. Right. Um, and he did have lots of connections to Ukrainians uh, who were uh, close to Russians and, um, you know, pro-Russian forces in Ukraine and, and all this stuff. Um, so, you know, maybe it seemed like a fertile area to look, but so far he has charged Manafort with a bunch of stuff in two jurisdictions, in, in Northern Virginia and in, uh, uh, I guess, Eastern Virginia and in uh, in the District of Columbia, and none of it involves what we call collusion. Yes. Now, as far as Cohen is concerned, remember, if you're part of the resistance and you believe the Steele dossier, I mean, Cohen is one of the, the stars of the Steele dossier. In the Steele dossier, Cohen goes to Prague and he's meeting with Russians, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll quote from the dossier right now, to discuss, quote, how deniable cash payments were to be made to hackers who had worked in Europe under Kremlin direction against the Clinton campaign and various contingencies for covering up these operations and Moscow's secret liaison with the Trump team more generally. So according to the dossier, Michael Cohen is absolutely the beating heart of the collusion um, arrangement. Okay. Now, which makes it really weird that uh, Robert Mueller handed off yep. Michael Cohen to prosecutors in the Southern District of New York. It almost makes you think that maybe the dossier stuff wasn't true. But, um, you know, right now we'll see what happens. Uh, just, just one piece of this. If 
they find campaign finance reform violations because and you know based on what i've seen that's possible right you know cover up the money send the money uh, we got to hang on another two weeks or bank fraud or whatever they can't indict the president while he's in office whether it's Mueller or southern district of new york no i think the same legal opinion that talked about you know collusion um, or obstruction indictment of the president would apply to any other indictment of the president right. that is you can't do it when he's president you can Remove him from office through the impeachment process, and then indict him if you want, right. but uh, but not a, a sitting um, president. But you know, I think one interesting thing for non-lawyers out there, and I am a non-lawyer. Um, I, you know, there aren't that many lawyers in the country. There's like, um, is it a million and a half? Really? Or, They're all I, here. I They're all here. Then. I've looked it up, and it's it's a tiny number. There are 323 million non-lawyers in America. Okay. And maybe a million and a half lawyers. And, many, and a million of them are here in D.C. They are all in Washington, okay. D.C. Okay. But, you know, one interesting thing for non-lawyers is, I mean, it's not illegal to pay, some money, to pay somebody money to shut them up. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you're running for president and uh, a woman says, hey, remember that liaison we had at the golf tournament last year, you can say... How about a hundred thousand dollars to not say anything? Yeah, and that's not against the law. Okay. Uh, so the the sort of twist yourself into a pretzel legal maneuver being done here is to suggest that if Cohen paid her off, and of course it would be Trump paying her off ultimately, uh, then that would constitute an illegal contribution. It was done for the purpose of preserving the candidate's uh, viability. Right. So it would be an illegal campaign contribution. And, you know, I just don't think the voters are going to get all that super excited about that. And with prosecutors, because, I mean, they didn't, I mean, they could have talked about a case. They had a case, John Edwards, and they didn't bring that case. Clearly can't. Well, John Edwards, I mean, he was really tabloid fodder, of course, because he had a child. Right, right. uh, But that was um, a clear case of campaign finance, that it it wasn't prosecuted. I think there were some illegal contributions. Well, it it was actually prosecuted, wasn't it? Didn't it end with, uh, in a a hung jury, and then the Justice Department didn't try it again? Okay. Okay. We'll have the listeners check this. But, right. I mean, they, they tried to get the, – the federal okay. prosecutors tried to get him on this, and the jury didn't buy it. All right, but, but you, you could presumably, worst case, uh, if you're, if you're uh, my perspective and looking at the resistance, the resistance says, okay, we can't indict him. But we got campaign finance violations, bank fraud, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll go out to bills of impeachment on that, high crimes and misdemeanors. I don't think <laughs> well, that's going to work. You should, no, you should point out that um, – just because there's a campaign, let's let's say there was a campaign finance violation. There are those violations all the time. Right. I mean, all campaigns, including the Obama campaign, yeah, have paid right. fines that's right. for campaign right. finance violations. I mean, that's you know, that's the result of us right. having this big wacky campaign finance system that gets that always gets more complicated and never less complicated. Right. So, uh, but right, so he, he might pay a fine. I mean, but. Let's take, again, worst case, they go bills of impeachment on this. It's not going to work. What I'm saying is pretty much from whatever is on the Cohen Cohen tapes, as far as we know, who knows, you know, they may produce a tape that says, let's collude with the Russians to get me elected. You know, that would be be pretty bad. But if it's all about this stuff, 
America. Trump would say he was saying let's not collude with the Russians. Right. I meant <laughs> to you say. Didn't hear the word okay. "not." All right. No, we, we don't want to make that up anyway. But okay. But but the point is, um, you know, that's not going to be. But people people are just not that interested or fired up or concerned about that as to make that a plausible. Yeah. Well, first first of all, you have to have to assume a democratic takeover of the house. Right. Uh, and then and then you have to. Uh, assume that Democrats look and see what won them the House in their, you know, after election analysis and decide that the coast is clear to impeach President Trump. You know, and th- those are a lot of big assumptions. Yeah. And you could you could see, look, if you if you come up with if you take the current uh, uh, articles of impeachment that are floating out there that I don't know, 30 or 40 Democrats support. Um, you could easily see tossing in a campaign finance violation in there too, um, but it doesn't mean Democrats are actually going to do this. Even if, even if they win, obviously nobody's going to do it if, if if Republicans keep control of the House. But I don't think there's any guarantee that Democrats are going to do it if they All win right. either. All right, let's go, let's move from that to um, the FBI, uh, to the dossier, to the inquiry. Um, you now have uh, a lot of people suggesting to the president that he should order the release of all these relevant documents um, well, w- without yeah. redactions. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not 100%, but 96%. Um, yeah, well, we're talking very specifically about this FISA warrant, uh, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court, where the FBI went to them and uh, said we need to wiretap Carter Page. That's in October 2016, before the election. And uh, there's been controversy about this warrant ever since. And in the famous or infamous Nunes memo that Devin Nunes uh, released in February, he raised, he, he basically made the charge that prosecutors relied on the dossier um to get this warrant and of course the dossier has not been verified and what happened was he he made that charge in the Nunes memo and then now we've seen um the uh, the FBI has released a heavily redacted version of the FISA application and we've seen that Nunes was right they did rely on the dossier and uh, Nunes said it formed an essential part of the uh, of the of the warrant application, and I believe that's correct. I believe it was an essential part. What is? I want to get it clear in my head. Is the other side saying uh, Nunes is saying it was an essential part? It was essentially the the, the, the gravamen of the matter, the, the you know yeah. the, the cause um, of of getting the warrants. Is the other side saying it was not at all, or it was a little bit, but there were other things too? Uh, they're saying it was a little bit. You can't say it was nothing because it's just there in the dossier. Referred to, right. Uh, excuse me. I'm, I misused the word. I just the threw FISA in the word dossier app, there. The it's there in the FISA application. Right. And even um, even uh, press accounts that purport to debunk the Nunes memo concede that the dossier played a, quote, prominent role in the FISA application. That's from a Washington Post debunking article. So there's just no doubt that, I mean, remember, if you remember before the Nunes memo, the big thing was 
people like me were saying, wow, it looks like the FBI relied on the dossier, which would be kind of outrageous, yeah. given the fact that it was a foreign agent working on behalf of the DNC and the Clinton campaign, and it was all unverified. It was kind of amazing that the FBI would would rely on that to to get a warrant to uh, wiretap a U.S. citizen in the United States. And the Nunes memo proved that that was true, and I just think that's beyond dispute now. We've got this, uh, we've got the actual warrant to look at. Okay. Uh, does the president need to take this advice and order the release, or is there enough there already? Well, uh, you know, I should, uh, th- that is interesting because the, the anybody who's looked at this uh, FISA application, and it's on the internet. You just look at it, and the huge parts of it are blacked out. Um, right. And you think, well, what is that? And one of the things we've seen is that people who are defenders of the FBI in this case, who said it was all totally on the up and up, they'll they'll often kind of say, well, you know, the really good incriminating evidence that proves me right, it's all blacked out, you know. And and you think, well, okay, I can't I can't prove that one way or the other. Uh, so it would be much better to to have it unredacted and released. So what we saw, and we didn't know about this at the time, but on June 14th last month, all 13 members, Republican members of the House Intelligence Committee, wrote a letter to the president asking him to um, declassify, to unredact this Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant. Um, and by by declassify, I mean you know, sort of a maximum declassification, but not total declassification. Everybody understands there are going to be some references to a source or an intelligence method that need to be redacted, but it, that would be a relatively tiny number of, of redactions in it. So the Republicans asked the president to declassify this, and he has not done it. And then at the end of the letter, the Republicans essentially say, if you can't do that, would you please declassify and release publicly pages 10 through 12 right. and 17 through 34 right. of the third renewal of the FISA application? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you think to yourself, well, they must really think there's something very, very important in pages 10 through 12 and 17 through 34. Uh, what is it? And you, uh, they're not saying. It's, it's classified, and I, I can't get anything out of them. But um, but clearly, they think that is a very important passage. And what are those passages? Well, they concern Carter Page's uh, activities and connections with Russians. We, we, right. I mean, the unredacted right. portions of those pages okay. uh, concern that. And, you know, in page 10 through 12, if you compare that third application that they, that they want declassified with the original application, you know, there's an additional footnote, a new footnote in it, that of course it's all blacked okay. out, so okay. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Um, but it's pretty tantalizing. Um, and the, I mean, the question is, will Trump just do it? And I, I'm not quite sure why he he doesn't do it. I will say one last thing is if he if he, if Trump just um, declassified those pages, that would have lead to instant charges of Republicans cherry-picking the document to release the things that support yeah. their argument yeah. and hiding all the rest. So yeah. I think that actually strengthens the argument for just declassifying the whole darn thing. 
And the reluctance to do that is kind of hard to understand why, it seems to me. Um, I, I've heard the argument, well, you know, he'd be charged with obstructing justice. But what, by releasing documents, by making public things that are in dispute? Hardly think so. Well, this is, you know, Trump would basically order this produced to Congress. So Trump would be ordering the Justice Department to comply with a congressional subpoena. So that hardly seems to be obstructing justice. But who knows? Okay, where's this going? Uh, where will this end? I mean, I know you don't know, but what's your, what's your best guess? Well, I keep, I, I keep saying I think it's going to end in some murky conclusion in which both sides will be able to claim they were right. Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, everything we've seen so far indicates that Mueller is not moving towards some sort of charges that involve collusion. Uh, the, the case we talked about earlier about him handing Michael Cohen off to federal prosecutors, he also had Maria Bettina, the uh, the Russian charge of being an unregistered foreign agent. You know, there were a lot of theories that she was part of this group that was funneling millions of Russian dollars into the NRA for the purpose of the NRA then helping the Trump campaign. Well, Mueller, they've charged her with what's called a FARA violation, which is a really minimum sort of thing of not being a, not registering as a, as a, foreign as a foreign agent. And, it has nothing to do with any alleged collusion, and Mueller is not handling that case either. He, he let the main Justice Department prosecutors do that. And finally, on the big in, uh, indictment that Mueller did do, one of the 12 Russian intelligence officers, he indicts them, and then he immediately hands it over to the Justice Department's National Security Division, right. which at the very least makes you think, why do we need a special prosecutor in the first place? If if the National Security Division can fairly prosecute this case, and of course you know well that most people don't think these Russians are ever going to see the inside of an American courtroom because they're not going to come over here. Um, but if, if Mueller could hand this case off to another part of the Justice Department, why did we need a special prosecutor? I don't know. Yeah. I'm sorry I'm saying I don't know. No, I know. No, I don't know either, but uh, that's why I asked you. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. good. We don't know together now. And we don't know. We don't know who else to ask. Anyway, if you don't know, nobody knows. Uh, <laughs> notice, though, what we're not talking about. I mean, all the rage last week. You remember Putin? I do. I've heard of him. Yeah. And well, you know, for me, and I and I did write. I think, I think I wrote that very day of the Putin uh -huh. um, uh -huh. Trump news conference that the president's performance was appalling. Um, because he took the side, or appeared to take the side, of the Russians mm -hmm. over mm -hmm. the United States intelligence agencies. And regardless what beefs he has with the U.S. intelligence agencies, um, and and some of them actually grounded in real substance. Yeah, I mean, gosh, John, wrong. Brennan's CIA and Comey's FBI, one, un one understands why he's ticked at these people. Well, yeah, I know, but but standing next to Putin I know. is not the place to do it. No, no, I know. So, I know. Right. And so it was it was a terrible, terrible uh, performance. But you're right. Uh, he did a do-over. Uh, a little clumsy, but he did it. Well, he did. Well, he did sort of a do-over. And then the weird thing is, is then he says, "Did over the do-over." We want to have 
we want to have Putin come to the United States this yeah. fall. Yeah. It's like, well, I messed it up and I want to do over. I want a whole do over of the summit. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, can I say, I'll, if I say one thing is only slightly related, but I mean, one kind of scandalous thing from this Putin Trump meeting is that we don't know what took place. No. You know, we knew ahead of time that it was just going to be the two presidents and their interpreters. So it's not like Mike Pompeo is going to be in there or John Bolton's going to be in there taking notes of what's said. And uh, so the only people who know are those four people in the room, unless there are any surveillance devices in there. And um, the president needs, I think, the president has never really given much of an explanation to the American people in any systematic way of what they discussed. And, who's, you know, I said this and he said that. And presumably he was debriefed by top officials, Bolton or others. Um, but it would really be a good idea for the administration to release some sort of readout on what Trump and even at this late date of what Trump and Putin talked about. It is amazing, though. I mean, I have to say Russia, 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 you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, poor Mitt Romney, remember, raising in the debate. No, no, no. That's a long time ago, said Obama. We don't worry about Russia anymore. And now it seems everybody is worried, or a lot of people. People who don't. Well, Democrats Trump. did a complete 180 on right. this. I mean, right. Just, just right. And total. Meanwhile, meanwhile, you know, uh, as the uh, was it the DNI? Who was it recently who came out with the stuff saying China is you know is our major major problem by far? Uh, seems to be. And, you know, yeah, yeah. and, you know, the president, I mean, if, if you went to many Trump rallies, I mean, he went on and on about China a lot. It was, I would say, in one of the top five yes, yes. promises that he made yes. uh, on the campaign trail, which was to go after China the way they were um, getting us on, you know, trade, but also things like intellectual property and, and theft and and uh, all the kind of stuff that China is doing. So it seems to me Trump would have a lot of support for a more focused trade war on for example on China maybe maybe you don't believe tariffs in any sense work but if you focused everything on China as opposed to also including the EU and Mexico and Canada and everywhere else you know it seems like you would probably have more support because the Chinese are bad guys in this case I'm I'm a a, a Trump supporter. I, I voted for Trump. I support him. I defend him on TV and all. Um, I, I think he makes mistakes, obviously, and some things are, are you know, like the like the performance in Helsinki, deeply regrettable. But but I gotta say, there's some wisdom in this. I, I wish I had thought. I want to get this right. I wish I had thought of this when when I was going to confession as a young man and said some sin I committed to the priest in the confessional. And he said, oh, really? And then I could have followed with, but you're worried about that? What about this one? Uh, uh, you know, get you know where I'm going with this. Get his mind off that one onto another one. I mean, it's a it's a version of whack-a-mole here, whack-a-sin, you know? Uh, well, he, you know, uh, each, they each used time... to talk about that with, used to talk about that with Bill Clinton, who said, you know, he would invent a new scandal to divert attention from the old Oh, scandal. the other one, yeah. <laughs> That's probably on steroids right now. Yeah, but I mean, but there's something because uh, because the, the the media and especially the media who don't like them can't resist the new one. They just can't no, resist can't. being totally occupied. I was it was wall to wall Cohen telephone calls this morning. No yeah. mention of anything else. And then oh, about 20 minutes past the hour, they mentioned uh, 
farmers losing business, you know, because of the tariffs. Yeah, which is a real issue. And, is. and by you the way, is. Uh, is. this is another issue, by the way, that I think the Repub- the White House would do well to to just make a good, coherent case um, t- for for what it is doing. Um, because yeah. I'm not as completely anti-tariff as some other people, but it would be nice to know the White House is thinking. Yeah. And clearly the president, if you listen to him, his speech in, in Kansas City to the VFW, who uh, was basically saying, give us some time. This is yeah. going to work. Yeah. Like, yeah. I've got a plan, but it's not going to work tomorrow. Yeah. It's going to take a little while. And that's why I've come up with this $12 billion in agricultural relief, and then um, everything's going to be great. Well, it would be interesting to hear what their actual plan is. Well, I heard it last night while you were taking time off with Mrs. York. I was working, uh, <laughs> having a dinner, a small group of, not dinner, but drinks with uh, OMB director Mulvaney. Uh, and he was, um, you know, was, I don't want to repeat what he said in a private conversation, but he, he said, it is a coherent plan. Everybody's on board now. Not everybody was maybe at the beginning, but everybody's on board. There is an end in sight, and we think we're doing the right thing. And this point was raised by someone who said just what you said. It would be helpful to uh, have this laid out by you or by the president, by Steve Mnuchin, whoever, Wilbur Ross, so we can understand what it is. Because, not, you know, not, as you just said, not everybody's instinctively against these tariffs, if, if you can make some sense of the argument. Make some sense. And what did Mulvaney say? He said... Yes, we'll do better on that. We'll do better on that. Okay, and I was about to ask, in your your in your actual personal opinion, do you, having heard Mulvaney make the case, do you think the administration has publicly uh, adequately made no, this case? No, not adequately. No, adequately. But I believe there's a case that can be made based on what I heard. I, well, I do too, yeah, and I'm not yeah, saying I yeah, agree with it, yeah. but I would like to see it. Yeah, I know, I know. And I know. Uh, and Mulvaney is an extremely effective voice for that so it could be him or it could be somebody else last thing and then we got i know we got to let you go it's very helpful um thank you and you know you know a lot um you kept apologizing for saying i don't know but you know a ton and passing that knowledge on to the rest of us is great but amidst all this i'll just say it and you can comment in the next few days we're going to have an announcement that because uh, this was in the air last night at this meeting of uh, 4% growth in the second quarter? Well, here I come. I don't know. Um, but, <laughs> I, I mean, that would, be, that would be really um uh, That's about all the signs and, are, right? That's what you're hearing, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. The, the signs are something, like, really good. So I mean, that's amazing, um, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's amazing yeah. after the last eight years, nine years. Yes. I mean, if you remember during the, uh, during the Obama years, even when the economy was, you know, slowly rebounding, there was continued talk about how these levels of growth were just not possible. Remember, there was a, a period of time in the New York City in the 1980s when they talked about how you know a city of size and character of New York is simply not governable. Yep. Um, yep. And the problems that beset New York, most especially crime, were just simply not controllable by the by the government, and which was all just complete baloney. And and after the election of Rudy Giuliani. New York City was governed. Yeah, it was governed. Um, Prove the possible so, by the actual. That's what we say in philosophy. There you go. There you go. So, I give um, it to you. Yes, go ahead. 
um, so as far as the growth is concerned, I mean, I, I do think that we, in the political conversation, we've just kind of gotten used to the idea that one, maybe 2% growth, best you can do. And yeah. uh, a lot of Republicans uh, who supported Donald Trump and otherwise yeah. uh, would say, no, no, you can, you can do better than that. Yeah. And uh, it looks like the economy is right now. Amazing. Yeah, well, we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. But that uh, 2018, does that matter the most? You know, that's interesting. Uh, I've, I've been thinking a lot about how, you know, what effect the president will have on um, on the midterms as opposed to every other factor out there. And clearly, if you have, you know, unemployment is, is, is very low, uh, if you have a lot of economic growth, Clearly, those are very good things for Republicans running for re-election. There's just no uh, doubt about it. Uh, the, the, there's generally a rule that if the president's job approval rating is well below 50, then his party's going to lose a bunch of seats. Um, I'm not saying that rule doesn't still apply, but I, I've become much more cautious when viewing Donald Trump and polls. The reason being, of course, that he was elected president on a day when his personal disapproval rating was close to 60%. Yeah. Okay, so close to 60%, 58 to 60% of Americans are saying they personally disapprove of Donald Trump, and he's elected president on the same day. So this I is do like, think there it's is like my grandmother said to me in my bad adolescent days, I don't approve of what you're doing at all. I love you very much. Be a good boy. <laughs> I mean, you know, she still loved me. I think she, there is. I think there is a phenomenon in which people uh, feel either either personally disapprove of Trump's style and some of his statements, or feel for social reasons that they have to express disapproval um, over Trump's style and and statements, and yet still consider voting for him and do vote for him. So I you know I don't know how that is going to play out. In the um, yeah. in the midterm elections, I mean, I didn't know how it would play out in the general election. I thought Trump would do well. I thought he'd do better than Romney, but I didn't think he was going to win. What was and, the last poll? Um, what was the last poll? I mean, what was the average of the polls the day before or two days? Wasn't it ten the election? points? I think 10 it had. I think it 10? was pretty accurate in terms of the popular vote. It had Hillary Clinton up by a couple couple of points she won by what two point eight million or yeah. something like but, that. But but wasn't it still or, like eight to ten points? No, that, that that had Hillary ahead by that much. Yeah. No. A week before, no. two weeks before. Uh, election day, um, Clinton was up in the real politics average of polls by three point three percent. On just a few days earlier, she was up by two percent. But if you go back to October eighteenth, not that long before, she was up by seven percent. Okay. She was at forty six. He was at thirty nine. That's what I'm. That remembering. was the biggest lead that uh, she had. Okay. Was uh, was seven percent. So your memory is is close, but it was in October, and you do remember all of the uh, all the glib commentators were basically saying yeah, this yeah. thing is over. I remember. Yeah. I I sure do. I sure do. In fact, I I went. I had words with two of them on Fox from Las Vegas. That was October, Las Vegas debate, wasn't it? Uh, which, yes, there was a debate in Las Vegas. And I remember being there. In October, and at two, yes. two Fox colleagues. It was at the uh, Venetian, I believe. Uh, the debate was in the convention center. 
Oh, you're right. It was in the convention center. I was at the Venetian, and the reason I remember it was I had to do a live shot for Fox. I think it was in the morning, and it was very chilly out there. So I'm standing out in front of the lagoon, the Venetian lagoon, sure. in front of in front of the Venetian hotel. And during my talking live to shot, a gondolier. During my live shot, one of the gondoliers decided it would be really amusing to try to paddle up behind me and begin singing <laughs> Oh Solomia, which he did. I'm sorry. I, I should have asked you. It's great That's story. That's why you don't have debates in Las Vegas, but there it is. But I was on Fox, Megan Kelly show, okay? Yes. And two colleagues, mainless, got on and said... One of them said, oh, you know, she's going to win by 10 or 12, and yep. Texas is up for grabs. And the other one said, yeah, you know, he's got to think about his concession speech. And I said, where am I? At CNN? What's going on here? You know, yep. and uh, probably severed relations for a long time with them. But, but um, I mean, every everybody was saying she's going to win, virtually everybody. Yeah, the, the, <clears throat> the final poll, the RCP average had Clinton up 3.3%, and she won by 2.1% uh-huh. of the pop- And we're talking about the popular vote. Here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and what was remarkable about Trump, uh, which is just still head-shakingly remarkable, he was a Republican who won Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. I mean, that's really, really huge. And that's you know, how it happened. Okay. We'll end it here. When you know something, will you call us back? <laughs> I will, but it could be a long time. <laughs> it could be a little ridiculous. No, you know I am kidding. You are the best. You're the best, and we love having you on. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. So Always much. enjoy being Thank you, Byron. Byron York. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Joining us now, a good friend of our show, Dr. Curtis Adams. Dr. Curtis is a psychiatrist working in Baltimore. Dr. Curtis, thank you for your time today. No problem. Glad to do it. I want to I want to talk, uh, Curtis, if I may, uh-huh. about sure. there was something I read years ago. I think it was written by James Billington, the former librarian of Congress, one of the smartest people I ever met. Yeah, and it was yeah. in the midst of an early gun debate, uh, same one we're having now, but it was maybe 20 years ago. And it said, the gun I'm worried about is the gun in the mind. It's the trigger in the brain that I'm worried about. You're a psychiatrist. Uh, you work with young people. Uh, I asked you to take a look at the piece Mrs. Bennett had. She was on the podcast uh, uh, recently. Right. And she said, you know, okay, talk about metal detectors, talk about guns, talk about armed guards, teachers, etc. But let's talk about these kids and what's in their heads. How important is that? Very important because... Um any kind of person who's going to be dangerous can use any kind of means or method. And so I think that focusing on how people harm other people is almost beside the point. So if you're in a community where there are no guns, people will use knives or cars or car bombs or fly airplanes into buildings. I mean, so there's any number of ways to to harm somebody. But um, for young people especially, it's it's very, very important to focus on who they are, uh, what's happening with them, and what they might be at risk of. And I think that uh, Mrs. Bennett pointed out a number of um, important factors that make people more prone to violent acting out. And um, 
should be the focus of people's attention, I think. One of the things she said, and I'm curious your reaction, because uh, Elaine and I talked about this, is uh, the, the importance of the school. We, we all know about the importance of the peer group. But uh, I was saying, you know, the school is kind of the, the, the hothouse for where, you know, a lot of what a child decides, young person decides who or she, he or she is, is decided at school. You, you may have high self-esteem, as it's put, or your parents or your mom may think you're the, you know, the center of the universe. But if you go to school and you're regarded as, a, you know, a nerd or a dope or a ugly or stupid or whatever, um, that can have a lot to do with how, what you think of yourself, that school is, uh, I'm not getting my words right, you can help me, is a place where a lot of self-definition and self, one's image of oneself is formed, correct? Sure, yes. Ad- identity, especially in the adolescent age, and so school is, is an important part. I, it used to be neighborhood was a huge, an important part. I'm not so sure as much, but because people are less active and outside with one another, but at the same time, it's just, you've got young people, um, in an environment that they go to every day, and um, it's an environment that they essentially have to go to and they don't get to choose usually. And so you, if you're not a person who fits in, it can be a very, very um, unpleasant experience. Um, and then if you're a person who maybe whose social skills aren't the greatest or has something that is easy to sort of target, it can be a hellish place. And um, it can um, influence you uh, in a very negative way, and especially if you don't have a social network to sort of support you um, and to help you to become more pro-social in your dealings with these kinds of significant problems. Does this have something to do with the fact that this is the chosen venue, site, situs for these catastrophes? I was thinking of uh, Stephen Paddock, the guy in Las Vegas. He just he went to a concert. He didn't go to right. a concert. He went to a hotel next to a concert and fired on the people there. You could probably take down more people in a mall or at a, at a game, sporting right. event. But the school is the site for these uh, shootings. Uh, we call them school shootings. That's redundant. Sure. But is that sure. does that have something to do with it? Is that where the resentments are? Is that where the anger is? Is that where the the objects of uh, that are that are closest to one's overheated brain are? I think that's. I think that's part of it, but there's also a certain amount of um, copycat in these uh-huh. kinds of activities, similar to um, a certain amount of, I, I, I'm guessing, I, I haven't examined these people, so it's hard for me to say, right. but it looks, it reminds me of, um, so um, when forest fires used to be uh, set and a common and commonly set, there were people who were inclined to try to top one another. And so um, one would hear about a forest fire, and then a person who was so inclined to set one would say, well, I'm going to have, if, if his fire burned 50,000 acres, I'll, mine will have to burn 100,000 acres. There's also, it's not unheard of, and it's fairly common, a, a contagion effect amongst um, people who commit suicide. And so if suicide is um, discussed in the media in a way that is... Um, without reference to other methods of dealing with your depression. And so if, if, if so in other words, if suicide is presented in the media in a way that it's the final outcome, it makes sense, and, it's, and there's no other way and there's no other option for you, then it can become quite contagious. And so the media has to be very um, careful about how they write about and talk about suicide um, 
so to, to not have this contagion effect. And so I'm guessing um, that some of these youngsters are um, competing or in their own mind or are um, copying others and comparing themselves. And I think one shooter, I can't remember which one, I think it was a guy in Texas, I think compared himself to the folks at Columbine. So he's yeah. clearly paying attention. Yeah. And and it supports the idea of a contagion effect because the fact of the matter is that he's too young to even be alive when Columbine so he right. had to search this out. So he right. had to seek this information. So I think that the school um, makes sense in a way because that's where they spend their time. And But then also the copycat part of it makes it so that they are much more inclined to do this in a school to top the previous ones, I guess. Uh, but just one piece of what you said, and I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail on this one, but you said the media needs to be very careful. It sure isn't, is it? No, and I don't think that the media is fully aware necessarily of their role and then how to go about dealing with this. Because, But, but I've heard some conversation um, in, in reference to this in terms of not um, or trying not to mention the, the shooter's name. Um, because then if you, men- if you keep mentioning the shooter's name, then he gets his 15 minutes of fame or notoriety or mark of distinction or whatever he gets out of having done this. Or, or, or maybe a side sort of benefit, so-called benefit in their mind. And so if you don't mention their names, then they don't get the same sort of um, yeah. notoriety for the activity. But um, I think that, I think that the, the shooters are ahead of us on that, and I think the media needs to really stop and think about how they're doing this. They, and I think they did so successfully with suicide, and so I think that they have the background to do it, but they really need to be very careful and uh, think about this. And they're not. I mean, again, you not only get the name, you get the picture, no. you get the picture over of and course. over again, you get the delving into the history, you see the as many videos of the of the kid as you can. That's um, right. About, let me go back to the school, because I am, I am interested in this for a number of reasons. Sure. Not, not just because my wife is. I mean, I'm stuck on her, so what she's interested in, I'm interested in, as you know. <laughs> and you're on her board, too. So That's but, right. But... Is it nevertheless the well? Two things about school. Um, Elaine points out in her piece that at least a couple of these we were talking about, um, you know, romance gone wrong. You know, uh, yes. a, a, a lover spurned, um, mm-hmm. and that was at school. That was a girlfriend. I, I, I guess I, I think I have this right. One of the first people killed in Santa Fe in Texas was uh, the girlfriend who had spurned this guy. And said, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have a chance with me. I'm not. I'm not going. I'm not going to go out with you. So, right. um, I, again, a lot of the, the the deep resentments or anxieties or hostilities develop in that context. Right. And I, I think that that's worth noting. But I also think that in sort of the wider community, that happens as well. If if I can't have you, no one can, is sometimes behind some yeah. of the behavior okay. of some of these domestic violence and and, and spouse or ex-spouse killers or these murder-suicides or, or these kinds of things. So I think that's almost an age-old one, but it almost has a new twist on it in that right. it's happening in the school at this level with young people. And particularly one of the problems with, with young men, certainly, but young children in general, but young men in particular, is that they just, they're young and they don't have, you know, their brains are still maturing, they don't have the wisdom they don't have the perspective, and so um, they can't figure out a better way to deal with the rejection and all, all the other cumulative rejections that may have occurred socially and so forth. So um, I think it, it, it requires a little special um, attention. And and it is men. It is young men. 
Yes. We don't right. have any we don't have any female mass shooters in the schools. No, I, I that, and so I, I think that um um dads are ever more important and and even less available to a lot of young people. Um and I've, I, you know, I've been sort of sarcastic about it, but the, the comment I made is that either you, sh- you know, a father's duty is to strap a saddle on a kid and make a boy and make him civil, otherwise he'll fly planes into buildings. And so I'm being sort of overly yeah. dramatic about it, but it's not too far from the truth. Um, no, I say your boy, your boys, you raised either Bloods and Crips or Marines, you know. <laughs> that's right. You got, you, it's re- yes, and it, it, it it's really important to, that you pick the right gang for them. Yeah, and then also, <laughs> right, right, sure, yeah, right. you know, the gang that that makes them a better man and just wears them out. You know, just to, and in the process makes them find something in themselves right. that they didn't know that they had. But it it really really matters, um, and not males, but fathers really really matter. Um, and because fathers have a special relationship with you, clearly, hopefully, and also they were raised, and hopefully they know how to raise. And so um, fathers, not just sort of around, but not sort of quality time, but fully available, make it much more, much less likely. I, I just, you know, you see that with athletes. You see athletes who tend to do a, have a better career when they have a dad in their life. Or, a da- um, or at least a dad figure. There's always somebody. Right. That's right. Who steps in, puts his hand on the back of the kid, and puts his hand on the kid's back of the kid's neck, and says, right. "You know, stop That's screwing right. around." Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it. You know, sort of, sort of related, but and this is from years and years ago. Um, there was apparently with the, with the with the young guys in Columbine, one of the guys was doing bomb making in his garage, and I'm like, "What kind of father doesn't know that something's been moved in his garage? Are you kidding?" Yeah, <laughs> you know right. how are you so checked out? You just complete—that's a father to me that seems che- completely checked out because you have no idea what's going on in your home, and that's not—I mean—that's a father who's around but not quality and not present. So it's, it's extremely important that dads are there to help them to grow into men and to learn how to deal with hurt feelings and anger and loss and disappointment and all those things. Let's talk about a fact then, because this is a curious thing that Lane and I have talked about. I haven't talked about it publicly, but I'm just mm-hmm. curious what you what you would say. If you talk about father absence, it's mm-hmm. greater statistically in the black community than the white community, right? Yeah, I think, yeah. It's, it's maybe mm-hmm. getting close to the same, but... Unfortunately, but, yeah, and the consequences are still the same, yeah. But no, no black, no mass shooters in black schools, I don't think. Not... No, in no. The, in the neighborhood, no. in the neighborhood, you know, a lot of retail. I mean, Chicago, what, Chicago, you know, a lot of black uh, young people killing other black young people, but I don't think a mass shooting in a school. How, right, co- and that's how why come? What is that? Deep breath and hesitate. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Okay. Um, and it, it even rare amongst other adult serial killers. I think the guy um, who, who was shooting around D.C. was sort of the yep. rare exception. Yeah. Um, but then this guy in Arizona was... Um, I don't know if you call him. He was he's very focused on particular people. Right. Um, right. And I and I think the I, I one of the things but one of the similarities I guess though is that a lot of times in urban in urban Baltimore's had a hideous experience the past 3 or 4 years with murder is yeah. that there's a fair amount of getting even and settling scores and sort of this um eye for an eye hillbilly but, justice in a way. But, I mean, but it's like, more individuate. It's not going in and shooting up a school. Usually not. No, no, not yeah. at all. Um, and, I don't know. I mean, I, I no. One's and then the drive-bys. You know, you know, you know. Years ago, twenty years ago, we had the drive-by shootings, but I think that those have gone away because the the novelty wore off. Honestly, you know, it, it's 
one of those things that they no longer co- people no longer copycat because okay. they moved on to something else. Okay. It's, it's that's okay. the thing I can think of. Yeah. All right. Let me ask you this then, and, and, and yes, sort, of, sort of get to our last set of points, and so we don't want to keep you too long. The school though does provide a place to uh, observe students and to give them signals and messages and uh, phone numbers and so on. I mean, it is it is a, that's where they are. You know, where do you where are you looking for your wallet? Well, I, I lost it here, but the light's better here. You know, go <laughs> sure, go, sure. go go where the light is. That, that's where the that's kids right. are. So, right. is that a place that should be doing more? about identifying what might be deep animosities, deep antagonisms, uh, hatreds leading to, to violence. Can the schools do more uh, in, in this regard, and should they? They, prob- they probably can, but the modern school has, and especially a school in a distressed area, has a ton on its plate. Um, yep. There are yep. so many demands on schools yep. um, that are... Are, are essentially overwhelming, and um, they, yeah. they they happen to be where it's happening, but I don't know that they're necessarily equipped to deal with this um, because there's so many other, um, okay, maybe even false signals that okay. are popping up all the time that they're already dealing with. Okay. I, I know about your reluctance here. I had it, too, when I went from Secretary of Education to Drugs are, uh, yeah. and I'd go into the schools. I'd say, I hate to do this. I hate to add to your burden. But right. you, you got it. But you got to talk to your kids about drugs. You know, you got to do it. I, I know. Right. I know how overburdened you are already. But you got to do it. So I, I de- identify yeah. and, with that. But but I want. And then the other thing too is that. It, so then their question becomes, and they never ask you this, is that okay? So which do we get to let go of? Because you asked me to do one more thing. Right. What can I stop doing? Right. And their answer right. is nothing. Right. <laughs> right. 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 We're not helpful. That's right. Those of us who are in there kibitzing. Okay. Now, you've also watched, and you are a psychiatrist, you work a lot with young people. You've, mm-hmm. you've heard uh, in these accounts at Parkland, Santa Fe, Columbine, these kids were giving off all these warning signs, all these warning signals, and something should have been done. Right. Do you agree, and what should have been done? I know it depends case to case, and you can't diagnose at a distance. Yeah. But, but there's right, a general right, yeah, sure. assumption that people let us down. I took a course at Harvard Law School with Alan Dershowitz and Dr. Alan Stone called mm-hmm. Prediction and Prevention. And right, one, right, of the right. que- one of the questions was, well, if you knew somebody was on their way, you know, and right. they were putting up guns on their website and putting up targets and shooting people, well, lock mm-hmm. them up. Well, not really. You really can't. Uh, right, right. Confine yeah. them. To, to deal with that whole thing. Do we, are we not dealing with these signals? And if we're not, what should we be doing? And how yeah. much leverage do we have yeah that's a good question and in medicine the the most the most accurate instrument that we have is the retrospective scope because (laughs) after the fact (laughs) right right it's after the fact that all this makes sense because the the problem is is that there are a lot of um false positives so you know somebody may have um distress and angst and uh, and and these kinds of things but would never harm anybody and wouldn't even think so. And so it's hard to know. It, it's really, it, it is so tempting to think that we can predict these things. Um, but I mean, I, I, yeah, you know, I work in mental health and, you know, we've got our, our predictive ability for suicide, for example, is very poor, even after all these years. Yeah. Um, all we can do is take a picture of what it looks like today. And we can't predict who's going to do what. You just, it's, 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 it's very, very difficult, at least in that realm. So I don't know how it applies to homicide because I'm not a student of that, but I'm just, you know, you 
just pulling over suicide as something that I'm familiar with and knowing that I evaluate somebody and I can't tell and okay. my peers can't tell and and we do all of these scales and measures and all these things and they're just not super predictive even after all this yeah so I don't so know they, I don't know how we're going to prevent these so they keep showing uh, in one of these cases I guess was at Santa Fe High School uh, the kids t-shirt which is you know kill people or I want to kill right. people, whatever it was. Well, there it was. There was the sign. Well, if you start rounding up every teenage boy who's wearing a, you know, I want to kill people or a skull and right. bones t-shirt, right. you got, you know, a quarter of the population. Right. That's the problem. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you know, years and years ago, um, NWA had the song F the Police. Now, if everybody who sang the song was put in, you know, was right. put under surveillance, am I, are you kidding me? Right. <laughs> are you kidding? Good luck. You know, we'd round up you know, 100,000 people in South Central L.A. alone. Forget about it. So, you know, it's tempting, it, and we want an answer, and we want to be able to prevent these things. And the other thing we can't prove is how many times these things have been prevented because someone has gotten help. We can't, we can't measure that. We can only measure the ones that, that got away. Yeah. So, yeah, I was thinking of, I just, we just, I just saw the, uh, the, the old version of Cape Fear, and, uh, you know, Robert Mitchum's the bad guy, Gregory Peck's the father and the husband, and he says to the cops, this guy's given every sign. He wants to harm me and my family. What are you telling me? You can't lock him up? He says, nope, he's going to have to, you know, harm somebody right. first. Right, uh, right, sure. You sure. mean i got to wait till my wife is dead or my daughter's raped before you guys do something? He said, yeah, well, sort of. Uh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, That's so, right. So our, our, our limitations in what? Because it's a free society, right? It's a free society, absolutely, absolutely. What, people what, retain their civil rights, yes. What about deinstitutionalization? Did we make a mistake there? I was looking at the numbers, and um, I know about the, you know, the, the stigma and all being in a mental institution, but I don't remember when you will. You will, you know the literature, 80s or 90s. Something like 85 or 90% of people who were in mental institutions were let out. Did we overdo that? There are a couple of different um, arguments that say yes. One of them is the argument of trans-institutionalization, in that a lot of these folks went from hospital to jail and prison. And so if you talk to a sheriff in any kind of small town or large town, they're in the chronic mental health business whether they want to be or not, and usually they do not want to be in that position. Um, and so there's that argument that a lot of people who um, are would have been in a state hospital are now in jail. The other thing, too, though, is that um, it's, it's hard to go back because um, once Medicaid became available and the federal government had a hand in paying for the chronic mental illness and it came out of the state's pockets, the states saw the opportunity and made sure that they – divested themselves of that because it used to be a state hospital um, uh, was state was on a state budget period and now if you can move the budget over it's all you know I'm, I'm, I'm being uh, sort of yeah no all, know. you know over, I'm oversimplifying but that's not the whole thing and then there's also um, there are lots of people who are in horrible conditions in these so-called asylums that um, that could be free in the community and do fine um, and then the other part of it too is that People with severe mental illness and chronic mental illness are much more likely to be um, victims of crime um, than mm. they are to commit okay. crime, particularly, and they're, they're violated all the time. Um, and there are studies that – there's a recent study out of Scandinavia that described this kind of thing, and it, it, it relied on um, um, reports to the police. 
and that, that's, that, that's a huge underreport because a lot of people with severe mental illness never go to the police yeah, for their course, problems. Of course. Yeah, so there's, so there's that. So, I mean, a lot of people with so-called schizophrenia and this and that are popping up, and they, they, they distinguish themselves sometimes, but, they're, you know, 1% of the population has the illness, and it's not, they're not committing nearly that many crimes. 100%. Compared to the population. So, yeah, 1% uh, of people so with schizophrenia. Yep. The, the non-scientific thing I say uh, often is there's a lot of crazy people out there walking around. I'm, I'm wrong about that. There are lots of folks. Uh, not exactly I mean, a rigorous, you know, statement I made, but, you know, be careful, yeah. son. Be careful, yeah. wife. A lot of crazy people out there. Yeah, it's, now there there are some, and but you know, and there are lots of people who are doing very very well in treatment, symptomatic or not. I mean, okay. um, we just we just are not in that business anymore, which is a good thing, I think. I think overall for for people, it's much much better. I mean, I could name the number of patients I've had who've had long term stays in state hospitals and this kind of thing, who are much better off in the community, just okay. much better off. Okay, working and productive. You know, I got a guy who. Got a certificate for being the most reliable church member. He made every single, you know, and he spent seven years in the state hospital after, you know, when he was sick, you know. So that's just that's an anecdote. But let, let's end. Tell me something other than more than more comforting than we just have to wait for the next one. I think we can get better at um, one discouraging people from copying, um, and I think we can also get better at um, paying very careful attention to what your wife talked about, which is um, the bullying, mistreatment, and the injuring that happens to young people in school. The old cliche is that hurt people hurt people, and so if we can just reduce the level of trauma and violence that young people are experiencing in at home and in school, I think we're much less likely to have these kinds of problems. Excellent. Dr. Adams, thank you very much. I feel better already. Good for you. Even without, <laughs> even without a pill medicine, or a prescription. The medicine. Took, huh? the medicine <laughs> I love, what do you call it? The rec- retrospective scope? The, re- the, retrospect- the retrospective scope, the most accurate um, <laughs> instrument in medicine. I do that <laughs> Monday morning quarterbacking all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. It's all clear when, now, when, 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 the, when the, all the dust settles. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you, Dr. Absolutely. Adams. Thank you, Curtis. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm, sure. Bye-bye. All right, that was Dr. Curtis Adams continuing the conversation about school safety and keeping our students safe. We have to leave it there for now, folks. We covered a lot today. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett and like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share our podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. 